Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. It's the 10th episode, and my guest this time is Aaron Turner, member of the band Sumac, co-founder of Siege Records with his wife Faith, with whom he also collaborates in the band Mammifer. He's also in the band Oban Gloom, and formerly in the band Isis, who were hugely influential on me in terms of the sounds that I now gravitate towards and the music that I now enjoy. So this was a real treat of a discussion. As always, you can find links to Aaron's picks and also Aaron's work at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. And I should say as well, when I do these discussions, generally, when I first call my guest on Skype, we have a quick discussion about how they're doing and a nice little catch up, which I don't tend to record. But Aaron and I launched pretty much straight into a discussion on the back of the question, how are you? And I didn't hit record quick enough to capture my question. And in fact, this interview starts midway through Aaron's answer to that question. So just a heads up that it launches in straight away. But this is a wonderful discussion and I really hope you enjoy it. And in fact, if you're enjoying the podcast generally, or even if you're not, give me a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating. That would mean a lot. And feel free to reach out with your thoughts. I'm at jack at attnmagazine.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, without any further ado, Aaron Turner on Crucial Listening. some absolutely wonderful parts of it and then there's some kind of ominous and worrisome elements so it's a it's a mixed bag i have to admit are you at home now is there at least i mean geographically some stillness yeah i'm at home um i haven't been gone much this summer uh which is good and I certainly feel grateful for a good many things in my life. At the same time, there's a lot of things that feel kind of precarious. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's the the global situation. There's our national situation. And, you know, I don't want to delve into that too much because, first of all, my my understanding of politics is pretty limited. And I just feel like there's so much... Uh, negative portrayal of situations in media and also in social media, people's reactions are so negative a lot of the time that I feel like I don't want to be another one of the, I don't know how to put it exactly, but I don't want to add to the doom and gloom that everybody's, not everybody, a lot of people seem to be not relishing, but kind of uh, steeping themselves in. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to shut that stuff out. I just, uh, I don't know what to make of it all, I guess. And that's kind of confusing. 
And then more, uh, more specifically, the situation here is kind of strange because there's fires, wildfires everywhere in the Northwest right now. So the sky is filled with smoke and the sun is blood red and we can't really go outside. And, uh, that just kind of casts a weird atmosphere on everything. Wow. Is that right close to where you are? I think it's still several hundred miles away, but uh, Oregon, uh, Washington, and BC and Canada have all had, I think, a record number of wildfires this year. And uh, this that was something I was kind of used to when I was living in California. It was almost like a, a seasonal event to have the uh, wildfires and to see smoke in the sky. Um, but in all the time that I've lived in the Northwest for the last eight years, this is by far the most catastrophic it's been. And there's ash falling on the ground and it really just does seem like this strange time, uh, of year and just a, just a really heavy atmosphere in a lot of ways. just like this, these, uh, kind of, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. This is going to sound like kind of nutty in a way, but th- there's been a long drought here this summer. So all the grass is dead and a lot of the plants are starting to die, which again, for the Northwest is kind of strange. Uh, as I said, the sun and the moon have turned this kind of blood red color. Uh, we've had one of our animals die this summer and another one just go missing. And now there's this like ongoing threat of nuclear war. And um. <laughs> uh, two two nights ago, uh, Faith and I finished watching Twin Peaks, which had just like this really nightmarish, catastrophic ending, which was amazing. But also just like it, it kind of crystallized this feeling, this ominous feeling that we've both been kind of sensing, but not really talking about a whole lot. So <laughs> I, I know I just said I wasn't going to get into this whole thing of <laughs> doom and gloom. And I realized I wrapped, I wrapped all these kind of trivial personal events up into this greater uh, unrest on a global level. So uh, I don't know if that's kind of a myopic way of looking at it. But anyway, that's my long-winded answer uh, <laughs> to your, your question about how things are going. Um, I would like to counter that with saying that uh, our son, who is about to turn one, has provided some of the brightest moments in life that I've ever experienced, and that is a daily event where I'm just hanging out with him, doing very simple things, and I'm just marveling at the beauty and the vulnerability and the kind of the ex- the inherently ecstatic joy of being alive. So th- that's the 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 weird dichotomy for me is that I feel like. Uh, I'm surrounded and immersed in these kind of worrisome things, but I also maybe feel happier and more alive than I have since, you know, being a child, maybe. That's a lot to process. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we talked about the records uh, that we were supposed to talk about, and I feel like this is a whole other topic of conversation. Sometimes I feel kind of disingenuous when someone's like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, oh, good. And that is like kind of a pat answer, which in some ways is true. But when you ask me what's going on, I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> life is full and there's the dark and the light and everything in between. There's a podcast that 
I occasionally listen to called Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is essentially centred on abnormal, well, not abnormal, but I guess honest answers to that question. So, yeah, yeah. I, I like the idea of that. But also as well, I think um, I can certainly... Uh, pick up on parallels in my own experience maybe in the past year or so where I felt the same pincer movement from personal occurrence and worldly event um, yeah. being quite a grim thing and um, you know I, obviously I can I think the you know the premise of equating those on equal scale is I mean emotionally it, it makes complete sense certainly in the experiences I've had you know yeah, and I think there's a lot of other factors at play here. I think becoming a parent makes me that much more aware of the precarious nature of life. And it brings me back to a state of being more vulnerable to the world myself. I think uh, kind of social conditioning kind of requires that we build up our defenses to what's going on around us in the world, both on the micro and macro level. And being with our son, I'm kind of uh, opened up to a more innocent and less judgmental and also less filtered way of seeing the world where things touch me much more easily. And um, his pace is slow. He's, he's going about his day in this very deliberate way where, you know, he's not rushing to do anything. He's kind of just d taking each moment in and observing his surroundings carefully. And it's it's actually forced me to do the same thing where I'm not thinking ahead. I'm not thinking about the past. I'm rooted to the moment in a more real way. And I think uh, because of that, things like the, the prospect of war, um, social unrest, yeah, the, simp the simple joy of watching a human being learn about the world, all those things have a greater, uh, deeper and, and more resonant impact for me at, at, at this particular moment in my life. Wow. I mean, I've spoken to various people recently in my life who've, I guess, had their relatively recent transition to parenthood and all of whom I've seen, even if they haven't discussed it explicitly, a real shift in demeanor and I guess focus as well, which I've found really compelling as someone who I guess is thinking more and more each day about future planning and, and family. So I'm glad that that experience has brought you joy amidst, yeah, more trying situation. And even though it's made me more worried about the world and what kind of world our child is going to inherit, it has uh, reinforced my optimism. And I know that's strange in relation to everything we've just been talking about, but I just see in him kind of the inborn goodness of humanity and also just the very the very explicit example of the continuation of life and the life cycle. And I don't, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that he is going to have a world to grow up in. Yet I also feel that all this stuff that I felt about humanity all along and uh, the innate human desire to thrive and to live and to experience and to be happy and to create and to connect is really our base nature. And 
certainly there are a lot of other aspects to humanity that are destructive and um, hard to know what to make of, but I still feel like this current of goodness and hopefulness, um, and that, again, like I said, that's just being reinforced by becoming a parent. I don't know if this is too much of a personal question, but like, what's it been like touring in advent of being a parent when you've been over to, say, Europe um, for quite a while? Our son is only a year old, so my experience is changing on a daily basis. Um, so it's hard to give any sort of, it's hard to give an answer based off a lot of experience. Uh, I've been away, I think three times since Ashley was born and they were all fairly short trips. And each time it was, it was difficult for me more, more emotionally trying than any prior tour I'd ever been on. And almost any tour I've been on in my career as a touring artist, I have been leaving behind people and animals and places that I love and that I love being around. There is something very different about being a parent and leaving a child behind. I don't know how I would feel if I were his mother. Um, and Faith and I have talked about this a lot because, you know, before he was born, we both had this notion that life would continue on much as it had been, albeit we would be dispensing with some of the things that we were used to having the freedom to do. But we, we thought we might still be able to tour together or at least do short tours. And uh, Faith has asked me pretty much every time I've left or she said, I don't know how you do it. Um, cause I wouldn't be able to, and people have different temperaments. And I also think that there is a, there is obviously a biological tether between mother and child. That's different than between father and child. All that said, I'm glad I'm not in the position of having to tour all the time. And I'm glad that I no longer feel compelled to tour, you know, five to six months out of the year. And with Sumac specifically, we, from the beginning, just kind of established that we weren't ever going to be able to do long tours just based upon the needs of the various members involved. Initially, that frustrated me a little bit, and now I'm glad that it's kind of this safeguard where we can't go on tour for a long time, because uh, I, I do want to do as much as I can, and I have a tendency to overcommit myself, and I often say yes without thinking about the things that I'm committing to. So in this way, it's good to have <laughs> some other people uh, reinforcing our limited touring capacity. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I wanted to ask about Knox, which came out relatively recently. It's your collaboration with Daniel Menchie and uh, a record that I've been listening through today. I understand it's been something that's been in the process uh, generated over the past year. Is that right? It's actually, it's a fairly old recording at this point. I think we, uh, I could be wrong, but I think we started it in 2011. Wow. And then we finished it, meaning like had it mastered and totally ready to go in 2013. Uh, <laughs> right. So... The, the initial process was pro, uh, a protracted thing for a variety of reasons. And then the label that was originally supposed to release it kind of just sat on it for a while. And eventually, 
you know, we, we just got tired of waiting. And though we really wanted to work with them on it, we finally just felt like if this waits around any longer, it's going to cease to have relevancy for us. And that's never a good feeling uh, to have about a recording. Uh, and we both really felt good about it when it was done. So we didn't want to let it languish forever. So finally, I just suggested to Daniel that Faith and I release it on Siege. So though it is a recently released record, uh, the recording itself is a few years old at this point. And like you say, I guess the relevancy aspect is an issue for a recording uh, that reaches a certain age prior to being released. I mean, has there been... What's the experience been like of uh, gathering, I guess, perspective on this record now from people who are starting to listen to it um, when it's something that I guess you've had with you now for for four years or so? Yeah, uh, I fortunately, I still feel very connected to the record. Uh, and it's also not a piece that became part of a live repertoire. It was just, you know, it wasn't something that I had to hear over and over again. So to some extent, it, it maintained a level of freshness that some stuff in my back catalog would not have simply because there are songs I've written that have been played live over and over. And if I had had to think about releasing those songs, you know, five years after having played them numerous times, it might have been a different situation. So uh, I still feel connected to the work and I feel glad that people are finally getting to experience it. And I also am happy that something like this record is coming out parallel to the work I'm doing in Sumac, because there's obviously a pretty high contrast, uh, aesthetically speaking, and even conceptually speaking between those things. And I've always been a, a, rest, a creatively restless person. And my desire to share what I do with other people is kind of based around the idea of wanting to expose my full self in a way. Uh, as much as I have misgivings and and um, a, a high degree of self-consciousness at times, really that's overridden by the desire to kind of share everything I have creatively to say with uh, whoever is willing to listen to it. So... Uh, yeah, that said, I think Knox is coming along at a great time. It's a pretty serene and contemplative and even beautiful recording, whereas with Sumac being my other primary uh, work at this point in time is very ugly and abrasive uh, in nature for the most part. I don't know whether this is maybe a, a, an obvious question, but given that the record was created four years ago and um uh, i guess prior to to sumac um releasing anything um and also at a time where i guess we were all in a very different position uh referring back to i guess our conversation that we begun with do you hear a different disposition within yourself within hearing that sound with specific regard to a world that you're inhabiting which is no longer really here i have a half-formed response to that which i'll try to find my way through which i was thinking about even before you asked that question <laughs> um, 
the time in my life that Knox was being made was actually a very difficult one. And part of that had to do with a breakdown of my kind of fabricated identity. That is not the stuff that makes me really who I am, but the stuff that I had made my life about and had maybe confused with what my actual self is. So at the time Knox was being made, I I had a lot of big questions about what I was doing with my life, how to move forward, what I wanted to do creatively, what I wanted to do personally. And I would definitely say that it was kind of a, a crisis in a way. I've never felt more unsteady than I did at that point. Um, so I don't know what the subconscious motivations were in making this work. And I think that's part of what creativity means to me is to just let things out and let those things be the guide and create the dialogue rather than trying to force something into being. So when I was working on this stuff with Daniel, I was trying to find a place where Daniel and I could come together in a really cohesive, interesting and emotionally visceral way. And though both of us are maybe known for being big, loud, noisy guys, that just wasn't in the cards when we started making work together. We just intuitively moved in this more meditative direction. And maybe that was what I needed. Maybe I needed something to really ground me and help me focus and create space and stillness. In retrospect, that is kind of what it felt like. And I I should also add that most of the work that I did on this recording was done very late at night. Uh, you know, when it was dark outside and I was working in our, in, uh, the basement of the place Faith and I were renting at the time. And it just felt like this very insular kind of solitary quiet time. And I think that was really important for me then. Now in, in my, in my personal life, I feel more grounded and happier and more focused than I have at any point in my adult life, yet the work I want to make is some of the most violent and visceral work I think I've ever made. Um, so maybe <laughs> maybe these two things are interlocked in a way where what I'm creating is something outside of me that I need to create feedback within me, like something that it provides an exterior counterbalance. And uh, on the flip side of that, Um, I'm not sure how to explain this exactly. Maybe because of what I am making, I am able to have a different interior experience. There are a lot of things in my life besides sumac, which ground me, uh, and help me feel good about life and bring me joy. And referencing our earlier conversation, I think being a parent certainly trumps anything that I've done creatively. Uh, at the same time, I think that this music, I've, I've jokingly referred to what Sumac does with my bandmates as self-help music. And it's not necessarily about 
attaining continual catharsis. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of actually opposed to that idea at this point. It's more about the idea of living with uncertainty and anxiety and prolonged tension. So in that way, I do think that that, is, that has helped create a more sustainable viewpoint of um, stability and calm in my, uh, in my personal life. What I really like is, um, and it really comes through in your response there, is how I certainly find experiences as well of trying to understand disposition in relation to musical output as being an entirely, um, not entirely, but largely a work of speculation and trying to, to draw parallels or reasoning. And yet I love the contrast between that and the visceral certainty of the actual emotional experience and knowing that it stands for something very profound but just the exact reasons behind that connection being anything but clear that's always something that's been really exciting to me yeah i think that's crucial if i knew what my work was about when i was creating it there would be no need to create it yeah. um that's the the process of discovery is at the heart of why I want to make music. So in that way, though I can speculate on my reasoning for doing the things that I'm doing, it often does take some time for me to really figure it out. And then there's also just kind of a perpetual mystery of why I do the things I do. And if it were all explicit, and it were all, you know, easily understood, that would mean that it was rational and cerebral only. And I need my work to be emotional. I think that that is more important to me than any kind of conceptual angle to making music or, or visual art, for that matter. One more question I wanted to ask with regards to Knox's working with Daniel. I've always, I say always, over the time that I've been familiar with his work, I've always been so fascinated by Daniel, I guess, both as a person, as he presents himself. And um, when I interviewed him, that was really enlightening in terms of the um, person that I now perceive Daniel to be. Uh, but also as yeah. well, his musical output is just incessantly wonderful um yeah and in a way that just reading his name and and as uh, attributed to a new release um there are a handful of people with whom i can feel a guarantee over the um gratification of the experience and daniel's one of them what's it like to yeah to to work with daniel i know you've done it more than once now um and and just to be i guess with daniel as a as a collaborator and as a person more important than our our collaborative connection daniel has become one of my best friends and also i think faith would say the same um we've had a lot of fun getting to know daniel over the last six or seven years or however long it's been since we first met and i think that that kind of connection to me again is also at the heart of the creative process i want to connect with people and there's a lot of people that I've known throughout my life with whom I've never had really deep kind of soul-searching conversations with, yet the kind of connection that we've been able to have through making music together reaches that level of depth, perhaps even, even deeper. Um, and in that way, I feel a great kinship with Daniel. Uh, 
I think um, Daniel's a talker. He's for sure a talker, but he's not, he's not a super open guy in a lot of ways. I think it took a long time for me to get to know kind of the, the more hidden aspects of who Daniel really is. And that's not because he's overly guarded. It's just, he's got this really exuberant, action-oriented surface and to to go deeper than that requires i think spending a long time with with daniel so in some way working with daniel was a way to get to know him and a lot of it didn't come through our verbal or email communication it just came through this process of giving things back and forth to each other and and continuing to work and seeing how the work unfolded as we traded it off. So I feel, I feel lucky that we had this creative connection that, that resulted in some good work. And then even beyond that, that we had an excuse to get to know each other better. You know, Daniel's work seems very serious and I think that it is very serious, but it is completely at odds with his with his personality. When I met Daniel, I was like, this is Daniel Menchie. Like I was expecting some kind of po-faced, very serious, or maybe even, you know, uh, soft spoken guy. But Daniel is totally the opposite. He's like this wonderful, extremely charismatic goofball. And I think that that, again, that kind of just proves that, you know, people, who maybe have one way of dealing with the world are able to give a very different part of themselves to the world through making whatever their particular form of art is. Um, but yeah, just to kind of wrap that whole thing up, I feel very lucky to have worked with Daniel. I liked and loved a lot of his work prior to that. And to be able to have that experience of working with him was a, a huge thing for me fantastic we should talk about some records i've asked today for you to present three albums um that you deem to be important including potentially a honorary mention i'd like to ask about the process for coming up with this list of important records obviously there's so many ways to consider that word and i've over the course of these interviews been so fascinated to hear about the way in which people have gone through that process so if you wouldn't mind um talking a bit about your process for interpreting that term and picking the records you did in a way it's sort of like what we were talking about with the creative process where i did something without really knowing my full reasoning for it and then began to theorize about it after the fact so when you asked me to do it, I was thinking. I guess the 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 first thing I thought of was what are some records that immediately come to mind as just being important, and I didn't become more specific than that. I I didn't think about when in my life I encountered these records or anything like that. It was just like, what are some records that I know have had a big, big impact? And those four came to mind. Actually, there was probably more like six, but for <laughs> a couple of reasons, I, I dispensed with a couple of the other selections and I tried to narrow it down to three. And I think now that I, I think about it, the three that we've sort of chosen as the main are, 
are the ones. Um, and then after I had selected them, I thought about why these were important to me. And there had been many records in my life that are important to me, but very few that have been long-term fixtures in my life and have also directly impacted the way that I make music and also more specifically have directly impacted the way that I approach my instrument specifically being guitar in this instance. Um, and so I felt like after thinking about all this, that this was a great selection because there are so many records that I love deeply that it would have been really hard for me to say, these are my three favorite records or these are my current three favorite records. So instead I just tried to intuitively and impulsively summon up a short list of records that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt have not just changed my musical life, but changed my life in general. So that's kind of how I came to these three. The Hendrix and the Metallica have to do with my formative years, and I think those kinds of musical experiences are maybe even more important than what you discover later in life, because at least for me, in my mind at that point, I didn't, I wasn't so judgmental. I also didn't understand as much about how music was made. So it really was just this kind of open-minded wonderment that allowed me to absorb those records in a, not a uh, non-judgmental way, but in a more open way than I've been able to absorb music as an adult. The Casper Brotzman record, on the other hand, was one of the records that came to me later in life that had almost the same kind of really deep and infectious impact on me that some of the records that I came to as a preteen and teen did. So that was like, I felt that was an important inclusion because it's one of the, one of the records that um, has been formative for me in a way that as an adult, most other things haven't. Well, I've had heaps of fun blasting all of these over the past few days i have to confess none of them have really with me had uh i guess i've never i've not had intense listening experiences like direct and thorough with any one of them so this was a real awakening for <laughs> yeah. me as well so <laughs> thanks for that if you would like to select sure. your uh, first to talk about and tell me uh, I guess you've already explained it in part, but specifically why that record is important to you. I'm going to go chronologically, um, just because I don't know another way of doing it. And actually, <laughs> I, I, listen, I listen to them in order, too, uh, in terms of when I encountered them in my life, without really knowing that's what I was doing. <laughs> uh, so Electric Ladyland, um, I think... I first heard pieces of this record on a mixtape that my older brother made for me and gave to me when I was maybe 10 or 11. It was definitely preteen. And I think I was initially interested in it because I thought my older brother was cool. <laughs> and um, 
of all the members of my family, his musical tastes seemed to be the most intriguing to me. And I didn't immediately love everything that he passed on to me. But at the age when I began to discover music for myself, rather than just kind of absorbing what was being played around me, stuff that was electric guitar based definitely was what I gravitated towards. And specifically stuff that was kind of more sonically adventurous and aggressive so i at this point i can't even remember exactly what songs were on that tape that he gave me but i know that one side was hendrix and the other side was zeppelin and (laughs) zeppelin was definitely important for me but hendrix had a much deeper and longer lasting effect and in choosing this record specifically uh it was again immediately the one that i thought of first yet at the same time it's almost hard for me to pick a specific hendrix record and it that's due to two factors one is that pretty much every record of his has stuff on it that i love there is no single record of his that I love all the way through, including this one. In fact, there's some songs on this record I don't like at all. So that's a tough one for me because even though his music has been uh, incredibly important and formative for me, I don't feel that there is a perfect Hendrix record. That said, his imperfections are part of what makes him interesting to me. So with this record, listening back to it, now uh, a few weeks starting a few weeks ago and over the course of a week digesting it uh, little by little um i found that yeah i i i don't love this whole record yet there are some songs on here which are musically perfect to me and i can still really relate to and uh in listening to them again, I can see how deeply they impacted me as a musician and also just affected my perspective on art and creativity and what that means and how the process of being creative affects your way of thinking about and and, and seeing life. Which are the songs that are perfect to you? Um, it's kind of the middle it's stuff from the middle of the record starting with voodoo child uh and then 1983 a merman i should turn to be uh and then a little further on all along the watchtower and voodoo child slight return those are by far the standouts for me a lot of the more poppy songs i mean they're okay uh, but they don't they don't do that much for me and that's kind of the true of the rest of the hendrix catalog like a lot of the hits you know they were cool and there's parts of them that are most definitely interesting but it's it's the more adventurous stuff that i really find intriguing i think yeah it feels like one of those experiences which everyone listener player sinks in over the course of duration um and this was, as I say, a record that I hadn't really listened to uh, with intention and in isolation. Um, and I don't think I really appreciated, particularly because I listened on headphones, that it's a pretty, like, still feels like quite a crazy uh, sort of part dislocated record. Um, 
It is. It, it's fucking nuts. That's one of the things I love about it. And that's one of the things where in retrospect, I'm like, the way Hendrix put together records is so weird. And I feel like in part, it was probably just people around him putting the records together. That's not to say that he didn't have intention, but I feel like he was so restless that he just wanted to go, go, go and play, play, play. And you know, there's certainly songs that are developed from the studio standpoint where there's overdubs and vocal harmonies. And clearly he had to, to work long enough to, to build those pieces. But at the same time, it also feels like some of the most important stuff uh, for me, and maybe also the most substantially personal stuff that he made is the stuff that there isn't really a lot of, uh, production, stuff going on in the sense that they're more just jams than they are, you know, fully developed songs. And so when I think about this collection of songs, I'm like, there's these things that are clearly well-developed pieces. And then there's these things where it's like, yeah, I bet this was like the first or second take. And they're like, yep, put that on the record. (laughs) And I think that's fast. My way of thinking about records for a long time was much more deliberate. And it was about this idea of not necessarily making things perfect, but making sure that there was sonic, conceptual, and um, structural cohesion throughout an album. It had to uh, you know, make sense and be linear from beginning to end. And when I listened to this record, again, now I realized how kind of scattered it is i'm not a a huge historical buff as far as hendrix goes but my limited knowledge about this is that this was kind of the end of the experience this is the last record the last studio record they made before um banded gypsies started and there was just this less kind of um focused approach to what Hendrix was doing with a specific group. So in some way I can kind of hear that on this record where it sounds like, you know, maybe they were trying the trying to get some pop songs, but they were also just kind of doing whatever they felt like doing. And there's, uh, the song that Hendrix doesn't sing little miss strange, which I think is an awful song um, to be <laughs> honest. Uh, so it just sounds like, it sounds like a band not necessarily falling apart, but pulling in different directions. And that's interesting to me too. That's one of the things that's always been interesting to me about music is what happens because of the personalities of the people involved. What, how does tension result inner band tension result in really good music? And when does it start to make things sound compromised and weak? And I think that there are things on this record that sound compromised. And then there are other moments that are just so singularly strong and, and bear the marks of such real conviction that it's, it's, you know, really compelling. On that note, and something that I read today while I was reading about the record, two things that really stuck out as sort of polar opposites, but apparently coexisted within the same album, which I think rings true to what you just said. But the perfectionism of Hendrix apparently was a real sore point for other musicians involved, and they did 50 takes of Gypsy Eyes, (laughs) which is... um, Really? Uh, yeah that's a lot of takes but also the fact that 
a lot of people were just invited into the studio to hang out and there was barely room to move and it was more of a party yeah. than a session and the fact that those two principles yeah. can coexist is it's crazy yeah i was i was wondering about that when i talking about voodoo child which maybe is the standout for me on this album and maybe actually the most important hendrix song for me period i was listening to that and i remember listening to it when I was young and wondering about the same thing where there's background noises and you can hear people talking and clapping. And I was kind of wondering, was that staged or was this the thing that they recorded and they didn't necessarily intend for the record or what the deal was. But I was, I was uh, kind of intrigued by that. Um, and I'm not surprised to hear that there is a, a level of perfectionism on Hendrix's part uh, in some way no one he ever played with could truly keep up with him. And in some way I feel like he was in another dimension and in terms of the way he was playing and thinking and, and maybe even feeling. And therefore I can imagine it would be frustrating to, to be playing with earthlings when you're, uh, when you're traveling <laughs> in outer space with your guitar. Um, so that's cool. I mean, I, I I'm in, I'm intrigued to hear that he was, you know, getting people to do so many takes because that kind of isn't my, my notion of what was going on because of it. So much of it does sound like it's off the cuff and just of the moment. It reminds me of a lot of, um, digging back into say Beefheart for the first time and hearing about how the process was so fraught and perfectionist and then hearing the record in light of that and being like how really <laughs> it doesn't sound like a perfect product you know yeah well I wonder about that too because I think perfectionism can mean different things for different people hmm. um, and this is going to relate a little bit to the Brotsman record that we're going to talk about later and I think perfection for some people means playing a part perfectly. Yet my impression of people like Hendrix and Zeppelin and also the way I feel about my own music is not about playing a part perfectly, but capturing the spirit of what you are doing to its greatest and most powerful extent. And so I wonder in hearing about this stuff with Hendrix, if it wasn't so much that, you know, the song was too fast or too slow or, you know, somebody fucked up their part. And certainly those could have been a component of it. But I also wonder if it really is just about knowing that there is a mood and a feeling and maybe even a spiritual essence that you need to know is in a take or in a part or in a mix and being discontent with results and f and enforcing a work ethic that drives people to the point of attaining that. I don't I don't know too much about this guy either, but I've heard some about Scott Walker's creative process. Yeah, yeah. Just like basically makes people fuck around and throw things and drop things in a very particular way. And when you hear his music, it sounds very single minded and very focused and very perfect. Yet it sounds like the process of attaining that perfection and that balance can be seemingly chaotic or, um, you know, lacking in direction or focus. Um, 
but that's the thing I find really fascinating is like what someone's idea of perfect is and how that's attained. And to me, the idea of capturing something that isn't perceptible on a practical or a practical level, or even talking about like the craftsmanship, like somebody's ability to play their part, but chasing something that's more elusive and, um, beyond the realm of normal perception is, is really interesting and how one person can drag a bunch of other people, maybe willingly or unwillingly along that journey with them. How does that map onto your own experience of recording in the sense of, um, cause I guess there's also this idea of when you're trying to capture a particular sentiment, that the labor of repeating the same thing as you're doing it, and perhaps for some people, I know for me it's a factor, the accruing frustration of not nailing it is detrimental in itself. When you're recording, how do you find the process of getting those parts down and capturing that sensation uh, in light of the requirement of repeat takes? Because actually as well, on a, another note, Scott Walker, I know, will, only wants to do vocal takes once. And so it has to be yeah. absolutely spot on because I think he's very aware of the diminishing connection that can occur when something's yeah. repeated. It's a fine line because there is there is... Uh, diminishing energy a uh, process of diminishing energy that comes with repetition um, talking about Hendrix one of the things then uh, this is kind of tangential but also related one of the things that interests me about him is there are so many different versions of his songs both live and then also on collections there's outtakes of things and there is certainly some kind of structural stuff that remains constant across these different variants of the pieces. At the same time, when you listen to what Hendrix is doing, he very rarely plays the same thing the same way twice. And even if he is reiterating ideas that are melodically recognizable, there's always kind of temporal and rhythmic variation going on. And there's different emphasis on certain notes and, and there's different things interspersed in these melodic figures that he's doing. So though a song may be recognizable as what it is, when you listen to some of the, the more specific aspects of it, the guy rarely ever did the same thing twice. Um, even within like two choruses of the same song, there's like, a guitar part that's like an inversion of the previous part. So that to me is really an interesting way to think about a song too, where it's like, yeah, you can adhere to a structure, but even within that structure, there's a lot of room for, for deviance. Um, and for me, that's an important part of how I'm making music now. Um, and, a, and, and more specifically a really important part of Sumac where I think we're almost taking without sounding like jazz, we're taking a jazz approach to certain things where there are certain parts of the song that are very recognizable each time we play them. And there's a certain degree of adherence to the original composition that we follow. Yet at the same time, we always leave room 
to make parts longer or shorter or abandon them completely before returning to them again. So for me, I don't think there is a perfect way to achieve this idea of, of balance between knowing your song well enough to play it in a satisfactory way versus not overplaying it to the point where you become disconnected from it. Uh, I think that's an ongoing process of learning for me and um, something that I'm deeply, deeply invested in. Uh, Improvisation is becoming more intriguing to me, and there are times when I do like the idea of abandoning structure or you know kind of preconceived structure altogether yet at the same time um i've had discussions with my bandmates about like what is improvisation really because if you're playing your instrument it's something you're already familiar with and there are ingrained muscular things that you do there are things that you've trained your ear to like so you're doing things that you've done before even if you think you're attempting to do something totally new. So, you know, the idea that, that you're, that improvisation is something totally new is kind of false to some degree because you can't totally dismantle your self-created conditioning in terms of how you play your instrument. And even if you switch from one instrument to another, at least I found this to be the case with uh, me, I still find the same kind of melodic configurations and structural configurations intriguing. So I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) I think I I just have to trust that what I'm doing, if it feels alive in the moment, has to be enough. Um, and the longevity of that can be determined after the fact, you know, if I listen to a record years later and I'm like, yeah, that was played well enough that I don't feel ashamed about the performance. And it was fresh enough that I feel like the energy in it is, um, you know, that the integrity of the original idea is still there. I guess what I'm saying is there's no, the formula for success in balance between um, newness and careful composition is not a static one. Uh, It's a process of dialogue between me and the work that I'm making and me and the people that I'm making the work with. So um, I guess in that way, it's, it really just is a, is almost an entirely intuitive process. I could have your second important record uh, Aaron and um, a, a little explanation as well of w- why this one is important I feel like I could talk about each one of these records for an hour or <laughs> more um, I'm glad that you're driving this along because I need to do other things today <laughs> <laughs> so and justice for all the trajectory into heavy metal for me um was started started maybe with my the hand-me-down tapes from my brother 
And then also maybe in third or fourth grade when, well, I guess, um, yeah, in third or fourth grade when I was around maybe nine or ten, I traded a cassette I didn't really like for a copy of Beastie Boys, License to Ill, and Motley Crue, Girls, Girls, Girls. And those two tapes then led to other kind of like fluffy metal records by Poison and Motley Crue and... Then shortly after that to Appetite for Destruction. So I had become kind of obsessed, especially with that record. And I I think I only owned it on cassette. And then I went to the record store, one of the only record stores in town where I lived. And there was an older guy there with a beard and long hair. Um, and... You know, I was like, I really like Guns N' Roses. And he was like, oh, well, maybe you should check this out. And he gave me an, a double LP copy of And Justice for All. And I had no idea what it was about. And I thought the cover art was cool. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I'll check this out. And I took it home, and it blew my fucking mind. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't know that I was ready for or needed something more aggressive and uh pummeling but this was exactly the right moment in time for me to encounter that record shortly thereafter i went back and got ride the lightning and master of puppets on lp as well and i remember my dad coming into his room where the record player was and i was playing i think master of puppets and him just kind of looking at me and shaking his head and leaving the room <laughs> but that was really was like that moment of being handed that record at that time definitely changed my life and <clears throat> and justice for all i think let me put it this way i could have picked a lot of records that are cooler <laughs> but <laughs> this is a very honest record for me in terms of the fact that this really did make me want to play guitar and it made me want to learn how to play guitar in a specific way. And also Hetfield's approach to singing, where it's like this really nasty bark, but also has melodic content to it, was really intriguing to me as well. Um, another thing I remember very clearly about this record was being in the back of my parents' station wagon on a road trip somewhere and I was lying on my back, like in the way back in the car with this, with injustice for all in my headphones. And I don't remember what part of the record it was, but I just remember thinking very clearly, how did humans make something so utterly perfect? Like it just <laughs> sounded perfect to me in retrospect, you know, there's a lot to say about the flaws of Injustice for All. Uh, the most glaring one, everybody's criticism, no bass. Yeah, that sucks. I can only imagine how this record would sound with bass. At the same time, back then, I didn't know anything about mix. I didn't know anything about balance between instruments, and I wasn't thinking about bass guitar, so it was kind of a uh, non-issue for me. Um I also didn't realize how supremely awkward Lars Ulrich's drumming is. And again, that's like a thing that people just point out about Metallica in general. Like, this guy's drumming is fucked up. Um, at the same time, I think the way he plays, especially on this record, is so fucked up that it's a part of its charm and it's a part of its uniqueness. Like, it's very awkward and it's very stiff, but it gives this record this really 
cold kind of stuttering feel that to me was totally engaging at the time. I think the lore behind this record was that they chopped up the drum takes bar by bar to create these, uh, you know, the, to create the, the drum foundations for the songs. And I, I have to wonder if that's part of what gives it this really unique aesthetic too. It's just, it doesn't sound quite right. But at the same time, it sounds so merciless that I think, again, that's part of what intrigues me about it. Uh, what, you, what about the production uh, generally? I mean, what I found really interesting is, again, another record that I haven't given an intentful listen to until this uh, process. Um, so one of my big awakening metal bands was Meshuggah. And I think the uh-huh. s- sterileness of the production of some of those records for me was actually a real draw. And hearing this record, yeah. it's like suffocated in terms of production. Yeah, the guitars are like, you know, chewing your earlobes. Um, what do you yeah, think of that? Is that something that aesthetically appeals to you? Yes. Uh, I, you know, every time I listen to this record now, at first I'm like, holy shit, this sounds awful, but it's almost like this immersion. It's, it's almost like a, some immersion therapy technique where the more I'm exposed to it, the more I find it compelling. Uh, and I think in retrospect, this isn't my favorite Metallica record. I actually over time come to love ride the lightning probably the most, but this is the one that changed my life, which is why I, I focus on it. And I do think that part of that is its production value. It sounds otherworldly. And that was another thing that I liked. That's kind of, though musically, obviously very different. What I liked about Hendrix is it didn't sound like music made by humans. There was something about it that was different. I, with Hendrix, it was it was warm and it was cosmic and it was um in some way inviting and with metallica it was completely cold and hostile but not without emotion uh and i think having discovered this um right on the cusp of of teendom was really important for me because that is when my angst started to bubble up to the surface and I did start to realize that there were things wrong with the world. And (laughs) also I started to realize that I didn't want to capitulate to a lot of the social stuff that was already happening with my peers. So this was like the perfect thing for me where it was like, I can be powerful and angry and, alone and feel good about that this record kind of affirmed my inner world in a way where i wasn't able to you know articulate to my parents or to my friends or to my teachers or find any kind of outlet that allowed me to express this and here was this band that did that for me uh and the record is so relentless and punishing in a way and so lonely that (laughs) i think about it now and i'm like wow already at age 11 or whatever i was i was clearly having shit in my life that i didn't know what to do with and that's why this music spoke to me um 
And I'm just thinking now about the record. I listen, I listened to this record um, over the past week or so, and you know, thought about. I was I was able to have a dual experience where I could be taken back to the time in my life and hear it and feel it as I did then, and also approach it from my adult mind now. And I still find it to be a, a really fascinating piece of work. And again, kind of opposite of Electric Ladyland, this record is very linear. There's a few minor missteps here and there, but to me it seems very singular in its approach. And though there's some some studio trickery going on here or there, for the most part the sounds are pretty consistent throughout. Um, the pace is fairly relentless. There's a few reprieves here and there. But even the stuff that's more mellow is still really harsh. Like, I'm thinking about, again, Lars Ulrich. Like, there'll be these almost beautiful guitar parts, and then he just comes in with this, like, stomping disregard for the delicacy (laughs) of the music. And even though, like, you might question that and be like, oh, God, like, somebody with a more deft touch here could have really done something with this part. Yet at the same time, I like that, that almost incongruous combination of these delicate, highly embellished guitar parts with these little flourishes happening here and there with this totally kind of dumb caveman stomp happening parallel to it is awesome. I I feel like that, that kind of wrongness is really compelling. And it's something that I later found as, as, as far apart as these things might seem, this kind of awkwardness within and justice for all created a mindset for me that later on found something like nurse with wound compelling, where there was these things that were existing in the same song that seemed so ill fitting together yet somehow because of their contrast became more compelling. I didn't see that segue coming at all. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they don't really make sense, but I, I'm just ta- like uh, thinking about how this record formed my perception of music. At the time, I didn't question anything about Lars Lars's drum choices. Yet, in retrospect, when I think about this and I think about how ill-fitting these things were and how there's these moments on the record like... Uh, See, I think it's in To Live Is To Die towards the end of the record where there's this guitar intro and then there's this other guitar and drum figure that come up underneath it that has no bearing either in terms of the the timing or the notes content that's happening. They're just completely disparate, yet they overlap with one another and that overlap creates this really bizarre feeling of like dysphoria or something, which again, in something like nurse with wound became compelling to me later on where I'm like, why are these things together with one another? And maybe I didn't even question it at first. I just felt weird. The music made me feel weird and disoriented. And I liked that. Seems that Lars has a propensity for that. I mean, this may show my age, but St. Anger was the record that came out, I guess, when I was riding up a wave of angst. And 
obviously the drum sound there was just so relentlessly disputed and absolutely despised by a lot of people but I know Lars himself was so into it and me personally I loved it to bits so it just seems that his palette of taste is something that really splits people down the middle yeah, well, I can't, I have to say that the cutoff for me was definitely the Black Album, and even that <laughs> even that record I had misgivings about. I will also say that I am somewhat obs- no, I'm not even somewhat. I am totally obsessed with Metallica, and I listened to their entire catalog out of fascination. Like I I think about why they do the things that they do, and I think about how they went from making something that in my mind was musically perfect to something that is so wretched that it's beyond terrible yet somehow like, okay. Last summer when Sumac was on tour, we did this challenge where we listened to Lulu all the way through (laughs) and we listened, I think we listened to St. Anger all the way through and there was something and maybe we tried to listen to Death Magnetic all the way through and couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> but there's something so compelling to me about it, like the wrongness of it. Like, I don't enjoy those records on a musical level, yet I find their mere existence intriguing. And I also can't help but wonder about the psychological trajectory that these guys have gone through as individuals and as a collective that have resulted in them making these really fucking bizarre and somewhat unlistenable records. And coupled with that, they've still maintained this massive audience. So all of these things are a phenomenon that I find continually interesting and kind of inescapable. And any chance that I get to talk to someone else about Metallica becomes like what I find almost like this uh, excuse for me to go on like a frothing monologue about <laughs> what's so interesting about them. Um, but yeah, justice for all, I talk to people about this still, including people who like early Metallica and they're like, man, you know, that record just sounds too fucked up. And I'm like, that's why it's great. Like there's these hits on the record where the drums and the guitars are lined up in such a way that it just sounds like, I don't know, like it just like this, horrible crack to the skull and i think that that was precisely what i needed at that time in my life it was like this awakening on the threshold between childhood and and adulthood and this realization of maybe not even realization like this disillusionment with the world that also led to embracing the world later on in all of its imperfections if we could have your final record that would be fantastic sure uh casper Brotsman massacre i don't know where to start with this do you have any lead questions <laughs> um 
I mean, I you know, I start by asking why it's important, but I guess is that one too broad for you? I can certainly start. No, that's good. No, that's good. Um, I think I referenced this a, a little bit in the beginning of our conversation, but this was a record that I came to later uh, in my life, and I think there is something about records for me, and I, I know this is true for a lot of people having had many extended conversations about music, that the records you experience in your childhood and into your teen years have an impact on you that is hard to match as you become an older, more complicated person. Um, and I think especially for me as a musician, once I began to understand how music was being made and how guitar parts were being written and what kind of gear made different kinds of sounds, all that kind of stuff, like the mechanics of music making that demystified music for me in a way that never allowed me to go back and hear music as innocently as I did when I was a teenager. It's a, and that's a loss in a way. Um, Yet it also was a part of me learning how to make music myself. So, um, like many things, it's it's dualistic. Um, so, in talking about massacre, that was something that I don't think I heard until I was probably maybe twenty five or so, and that was a point where I'd already made a lot of records myself, and a lot of what. Be, had had become my musical makeup had been pretty well formed and so it was hard for records at that point to have a really deep impact on me in a way where i just felt like overwhelmed by them but when i heard massacre for the first time and i heard this record home specifically i was like holy shit like this is a uh, musical perfection that I hadn't yet experienced. And again, there was something about the wrongness of it that was really compelling to me. There was a bunch of musical things going on within that record that I had totally written off as taboo in my personal rule book, um, soloing, wah-wah, uh, Fender Stratocaster, Marshall Amps, um, uh, the voice being used as a sound-making implement rather than uh, an instrument for lyrical delivery. You know, at that point in my life, I still recognize the importance of, of Hendrix in my, in my musical history, and I recognize the importance of rock music in general for me yet i was also much more interested in electronic music and noise in rock music that was very understated and often didn't have solos and you know all this stuff that really should have made massacre unappealing to me yet when i heard this record it really just grabbed me and has maintained a level of intrigue for me that is still really there. Like I listened to this record yesterday and today and I'm still hearing new things in it and I'm still engaged by it. And there's very, very few records that I've 
encountered past age 18 that have had that kind of longevity for me. More specifically, I think Casper Brotsman playing um, reinvigorated me in terms of how I saw the electric guitar. Again, at the time, I was really interested in a lot of more kind of electronic stuff or ambient stuff. I, I had been listening to people like Finesse and Tim Hecker and um, uh, even more abstracted stuff. Like uh, I really liked Mick Harris's Lull records, which were pretty much just like, you know, static ambience. And even though some of this stuff was guitar based, it was so far removed from what I thought of as guitar music that, you know, I, I was, um, I wasn't really thinking about rock guitar anymore or not in the same way. And I was really intrigued by how far away these people had taken the guitar from the original rock palette. Yet when I heard Brotsman, I was like, holy shit, this is fucking rock and roll guitar playing, but it's also completely out there. And in some way, totally again possessing some inhuman quality like something that doesn't sound like music made by merely human hands and it made me realize and still makes me think about how important a player is not just in terms of what they play but just what is imbued with their music from who they are and who they can't help but be. And I think, I, I feel like I hear that in Brotsman's playing. It's like half the time he's not even playing notes. Um, a lot of the time on this record, it's not even, there's no drums, there's no bass, there's not even a song really yet. There is so much being communicated in him just kind of bending the fretboard and, raking his fingers along the string that it says way more than, you know, um, a lot of really, how can I put this much more finessed and complicated guitar based music. And it says so much about him as a, as a spirit that I, that I find really, really, really attractive and, and really rich. And again, there is kind of a thread for me with these other records, maybe obvious, more obviously to back to Hendrix, but also in terms of a connection to something more aggressive like Metallica. And I think I liked how Brotsman embraced this kind of 60s blues, blues rock feel, but he made it much angrier and darker and in a way brought it into a territory that almost feels to me like the same feeling I get when I listen to like Penderecki or Leggetti or something like that, where it's just like, it's like, a I don't even have words for it. It's like this otherworldly sense of dread and tension yet, uh, kind of, um, spirituality that exists within that. What I found so captivating reading about Casper, and again, I think it's something that rings true to a lot of what you said there and a lot of the sensations I'm getting from his playing is this sense of naivety about the interaction with his instrument in that um, I saw an interview where he talked about the fact that he um, 
he didn't want to be called a guitarist, but he refers to making sounds with his hands. Um, yeah. And there's almost like a magic within it where it's like, you know, something's happening when I'm using my hands in this way. You know, almost like someone yeah. saying, I clutch this pen and I push it down and, you know suddenly these ink drawings come out like it there's there's this there's this really almost like a self-imposed naivety around what he's doing which for me as well felt when i watched videos of him as well just this utter unflinching lack of distinction between conventionally wanted and unwanted sound just this rolling between them constantly which was really fascinating yeah i think that's true and i think that that's really important i mean there is an obvious historical thread to what he's doing to other people maybe most notably hendrix i mean there is no doubt that that is a part of his musical lexicon in a very big way at the same time i think um for me he kind of took the thread that hendrix had laid down that most other people didn't follow like when i think about what i liked about hendrix i think about his rendition of the star spangled banner at woodstock where there's a few somewhat conventionally delivered phrases and then the rest of it is just this maniacal guitar abuse and while it is out of control there's also this very strong will of the player being imposed upon that and there's like this idea of controlling or maybe just channeling chaos in a very intentional way and uh i think most of what happened historically out of hendrix became this idea of the worship of the guitar and it even eventually resulted in bullshit like steve Vai and joe satriani which i absolutely fucking abhor <laughs> but i i think in some way Brotzman is a different kind of Hendrix inheritor that is far more compelling where he took the guitar and did the wrong things with it and by <laughs> specifically choosing to do the wrong things with it making it feedback playing parts of the neck and the headstock that aren't meant to be played choosing to use it to create space and uh, to disrupt the idea of linear time rather than creating some sort of really easily followed momentum and narrative. That is what was interesting. It was like the subversion of the guitar made the guitar interesting and new again. And maybe something about his, his uh, naive approach to the guitar, even if it's kind of like a... Uh, not calculated, but intentional nativity is part of what makes it really unique to him. Instead of trying to make a song sound a certain way, he is finding out what the full extent of the range of the guitar is, all the way from, you know, constructing a beautiful set of chords to creating something that borders on harsh noise. Um, and I find that that really, really interesting. And again, this to, to draw a thread between these three records, these are all musicians um, who I think can't help but sound like themselves and who are the only people who sound like them. They've all had their emulators. Certainly Metallica and Hendrix would be 
um, much more noticeable in their influence due to their popularity. But for me, they're all of the same level of magnitude where they're just these these really idiosyncratic musical personalities um, and more specifically guitar players. And though there might be other people who try to sound like them, no one ever has. Um, and that's because these guys were just doing what they were this again, this is my sense of things. This is what they were compelled to do. This is what they had to do. This is what they were fascinated by. And it had to do much more with that than trying to, will an, a song into being that was more about just like i don't know like a catchy tune or or something that sounded like something that already existed in a way it's almost um for me there's a almost a heartbreak in that as someone who wants to generate art and um and to generate music and that these people seem so driven by the tides of circumstance and then there's will in there but ultimately it's this mere fragment of something that is just this whole slew of colliding I guess coincidence and this lifetime of accruing understanding of music which is so little to do with the desires of the person actually going through that but yeah um, you know it's uh, difficult there's a lot to explore in terms of what music means in relation to the person that's making it. In some ways, I can see how creativity and the, the need to be creative and the drive to be creative can be destructive. And in some ways, it has broken certain people down. That's maybe even killed certain people or driven people insane. And there is something to be said for what it means to be a conduit for creative energy. Because even though I think a lot of people are imposing their own will on the music, the people that I am the most drawn to seem to be the ones that are really channeling something else. And maybe it becomes theirs because they act as a specific kind of filter for the energy that they're channeling, yet that energy is still truly alive in and of itself. And if you think about just like a mechanical mechanism that uses electricity, uh, you know, eventually these mechanisms break down through use. So there is something about like, you know, Hendrix having died, James Hetfield um, completely seeming to lose his way as a songwriter and maybe Casper Brotsman kind of disappearing and reappearing. Uh, that says something about what happens to people and how part of creativity is madness and part of it is a willingness to explore the unknown and how unnerving as well as enriching that can be speaking of his um reappearance recently have you seen casper live at all i've never i've never seen him live in the flesh i have watched live videos though that's hardly the same thing (laughs) have you seen that one there's a berlin 2011 with like 
lots of swirling cameras and like crane cams. Yeah, yeah, and... yeah the super pro shot thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw that. On, I saw that on TV in a hotel room in Germany somewhere. Um, oh, I didn't know what the the context for that was, but in digging around, I found out that that was part of a um a broadcast that included massacre uh neubauten wire and maybe somebody else so it was like this collection of kind of um avant-garde experimental icons who somehow straddled the line between the mainstream and um you know kind of more the artsy music world it's uh I mean, to be honest, it slots into the picture of how I see Berlin anyway, but to think of all that technical expense for um, someone... For Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I I think it's wonderful. But um, Do you listen to the music that he's done recently? I was looking. I see that he's recently embarked on like a trio with Massimo Pupillo and alexandra babel which listening to pieces of that i'm definitely going to explore more but have you listened to any other of his his material yeah i listened to um i listened to the no home record he did with uh the guys from his dad's full blast band the oh, yeah. the peter brooks guys um and i think fm i know fm Einheit was on a few of those songs as well I thought that was pretty interesting. Not as compelling to me as Massacre, but still quite good. And then I, I also listened to this newest trio record, which you mentioned, and I loved it. Um, and it, and it possessed a lot of the same qualities for me that Massacre did, uh, albeit from a more impro- uh, impro- uh, improvisational approach. Um, so, you know, the fact that he doesn't do that much is kind of frustrating to me simply because I want to hear more from him. Yet every time I hear something from him, I, I usually find it quite good and rich. Uh, so in his case, uh, quantity over quality is is fine by me. I did actually see there was a, well an interview he did on a site called 15 Questions, which the premise of those interviews is the same every time they ask 15 questions of someone. And they answer each of the questions in turn. And Casper's piece was just, it started with him going, thank you for the questions. I'm not going to answer them all. I'm just going to write down a few things freely uh-huh. about my music and inspiration. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's a, just a, I guess, a relentless eschewing of any attempt to put a structural barricade around him, which I think is quite nice. Yeah, that's probably one of the things I find so compelling about his music. say thank you aaron this has been so nice um thank you so much for sharing these records with me there is as well i wish i called it a bonus mention because pronouncing honorary causes me problems but um you have one more record that you wanted to mention today 
Um, would you like to tell me what that one is? Uh, yeah, I'm going to just go over this briefly since I feel like we've we've covered a lot of ground here. But the Neil Young Dead Man record, again, there is something wrong for the with this record for me, and that is that it was made by Neil Young. <laughs> uh, and uh, I heard I heard I heard Neil Young being lauded by a lot of people that I really liked uh when i was growing up yet every time i tried to listen to his music i was like man this is just not for me i I don't like his singing i don't like these kind of tepid rock songs i don't know what the fuck this is um but i when i saw dead man the first time I don't know if I knew if I was really paying attention to the fact that it was Neil Young or not, but I do remember just hearing that the opening song in the credits, which actually isn't even on the soundtrack album. And I just thought to myself, wow, that's, that's a beautiful piece of music. And so later I picked up the soundtrack and I ended up becoming obsessed with it. It was one of those things that I listened to, if not every day, I would say probably five times a week um, for maybe a year or more. And again, it was one of those records that I came to maybe around the same time as Massacre or just a little bit earlier where I didn't really care about more conventional guitar. Yet here was a record that was only guitar Um, and guitar in a fairly electric guitar in a fairly transparent setting just by itself, minimal effects. And the simplicity of it was absolutely just I I don't even know what the right word for it is, but I listened to it over and over. I knew it inside and out, yet it never became dull for me. No matter how many times I heard these refrains being repeated, they were supremely effective. And even divorced from the visuals of the the movie um, were a very compelling standalone uh, piece of music or pieces of music. And I also became obsessed with the guitar sound itself. Uh, And I chased it around for a long time and then just realized there's no reason why I should try to replicate this. It's wonderful enough as its own thing. And I don't, I don't need to do what someone else did yet. It also was fun to try to, you know, to, to find out, um, you know, how somebody did something. Cause at, at that point in my life, I was kind of done emulating other people in a lot of ways. I had spent a lot of time as a teenager learning Metallica riffs and Soundgarden riffs and Jimi Hendrix solos, and I didn't really care to spend any more time thinking about someone else's music in that way. So when I heard that record and I heard a guitar sound that I found so utterly perfect, I did feel compelled to try to figure it out. I never did, but uh, that's that. That was a fun exploration for me, and still a record that I hold in very high regard. And if nothing else, it 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 made me feel brave enough to try to do guitar music on my own in a way that you know I felt I could believe in the guitar uh, as being interesting enough in and of itself. If the the person playing it had something interesting to say. Yeah, it's a gorgeous guitar tone. Actually, I have a f- funny relationship with it because I-, I nearly saw Dead Man this summer. I was at Glastonbury Festival and they put on a cinema screen with Cuban sports cars positioned in front of it and you could hire one out. But the showing of Dead Man was at half two in the morning. So my memory of this soundtrack is 
falling asleep in a Cuban sports car and being jolted awake every time the guitar twang came in <laughs> and having a moment of just like, where the fuck am I? What What is this? Um, yeah. <laughs> repeatedly for an hour and a half. So, Yeah, so- it sounds perfect, actually. <laughs> as i say thank you this has been wonderful if people want to um find out what you're doing um or listen to any of your music is there a a best place for them to be headed uh not really it's kind of scattered i think actually honestly my instagram is the best place because that's where i often post uh tour dates and announcements about new releases so i'd say that that's probably the only place where I tend to put something about everything that I'm doing. And that's like Aaron B. Turner, isn't it? Or something. Yep. Yep. That's it. Great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, I'll see you very soon. Thanks, Jack. <laughs>